house saying he wants Jesus to come back. Amen. He's like, well, we'll either go see him or he'll come back. He's like, I'd rather him come back. He's like, yeah, me too. So, well, it was an incredible week in Miami for those who were able to come. We had 181 adults. Uh, no, not adults, people. Sorry, they're already shaking their heads from the front. The little uh, pharisaical gallery here. <laughs> Number check. Okay, just hold, hold on. 181 people. Okay? <laughs> I think there's 150 adults and 30 some kids or something like that. <laughs> so there are, there are seven salvations. We're believing for more. You never know what God does. Woo! Uh, and, you know, that someone reminded me as I was talking to one of the other pastors uh, that I go to school with in California, and he was saying that, you know, that really, truly the game is narrow, isn't it? And we shouldn't be surprised by seven salvations, but I'm like, but Lord, come on, let those seeds go deeper in the soil, let Amen. them take root and last forever. Uh, but 584 gospel seeds were planted, which is pretty amazing. That means uh, people are out there, they're active, they're intentional, they're sharing the gospel at our uh, outreaches and all across the city. And then not only that, but we also saw, which is very important, this is the discipleship aspect of our times uh, on mission, is 42 got connected to the local church, which is yes. incredible. Because you never know what God does with that, and, uh, because as they become a disciple of Jesus, their lives will multiply, uh, and our fruit will remain in Miami. Amen? Amen. So they're always fruitful. We did announce that we are going to San Francisco officially uh, there, and so we are going at the end of June, and the, the really the vision behind Miami was, was a family reunion, and we don't always have that theme. Uh, but that was the theme, and really, essentially, the reason why we, we needed that as a church is because six months ago, we we went to, uh, we are in Washington, D.C., it was very much like probably San Francisco is going to be, on, but we're going to be most likely using the transit system there, a very urban setting, uh, international setting, uh, we, there's something like 580,000 Chinese that live in the Bay Area of 7 million, and so there's a, it's a great opportunity to to be amongst the, the unreached people groups. Uh, and the reason why we had the family reunion is because it was so hectic and crazy. This last season, we just felt as a leadership team, was a little crazy. We needed to slow the pace down a little bit and make sure that we uh, really do love one another and having some time together and extended times. In fact, people came up to me and said, like, what do we do now? Hey, man, this, this is built in for you to go and walk across the room and get uh, together with people you don't normally get together with and have a meal with and so that was one of my favorite times of the favorite times of the whole trip. I don't know about you, but that was incredible. And then it just made the uh, the outreach is so much more refreshing. Mm -hmm. Really, as we, we spent time with God in the morning, we got filled up with Him and His Word, and got to hear in the Book of Ruth, and then went out uh, and shared the gospel, and then came back and really got to. Uh, share testimonies and, and get to know one another even at that level. There's so many people I don't know really well just because our church has grown so much over this last year and I'm just so thankful for what God's doing. He really truly has heard our prayer that we would grow deep and wide. Uh, and you know, it's from Isaiah 54 just that the, as, as God sort of stretches the tent if you will and brings more people inside the family, inside the house equally 
we need to make sure that we're driving that tent peg deeper and so it doesn't break. Uh, and, and really with that is a great metaphor for really our prayer has been since the beginning. God, would you not only grow us in width, would you not only expand the, 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 the numbers of people that come in through the house here in Antioch, Berlin, but also would you take us deeper in your word so that we can truly be disciple makers. And that's what I'm, I'm privileged to really pastor a church full of disciple makers. I couldn't be more thrilled. So way to go with that. It's awesome. Uh, San Francisco is, is not going to be $600. I promise you that. That'll probably just be your plane ticket out there. But uh, it's going to be a lot more expensive. So start saving now. $200 a month, if that. Uh, and I tell you, by the time you get there, uh, you'll have all the money and you can help other people get there as well, too, because I'm sure God's going to bring more people in in the springtime as the launches happen again on campus. And, and so it's going to be exciting. Amen? Amen. All right. If, if you have any problems with finances, just come see Benji here at the front. He's got your, he's got your plans in San Francisco. So, amen? All right, let's pray. Let's pray. And uh, we'll get into Mark chapter 2, verse 14 to 17. We're only going to do a few verses here. So, Father, open up our minds and our hearts so that we can see your word this morning. I pray that you take away all the familiarity. Mm -hmm. It's so easy to just come into this gospel and just say, okay, I know the story. Jesus, you are the friend of sinners. But, God, I pray that you would touch people's hearts. That you you you'd open up our heart if we're if we're struggling with any hardness, uh, that you'd soften it. If you if we're closing our heart, would you open it? If you uh, if, if we're dealing with uh, familiarity, uh, like most of us do, my God, I pray this would be refreshing and new to us this morning. That it might transform our lives. That we, like James says, we're not just to listen to the word, but it is to transform our lives, it is to so that we might live it out and glorify you. And I pray there be no part of our heart that just listens and not obeys. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, well, Jesus healed the paralytic, made a mess of that man's house, probably had to hire some guys to go fix the roof probably afterwards. But I'm sure it was quite a show, and most of us wouldn't mind having our roof uh, destroyed uh, if we get to see a miracle like that. That man walked out, and, and then Jesus went on with his ministry. Uh, you see that in chapter 2, verses 1 through 13, that he then went out again by the seashore, and all the people were coming to him, and he was teaching them. That was the purpose of Jesus' ministry. It wasn't just to heal our bodies, because he knew that if that man, yes, he might have gotten healed of a headache, or, uh, you know, he, he might have, God definitely healed the lame, and he, and he even raised the dead, I mean, but that person, you know, of course, unfortunately, Lazarus had to die again, right? We all know that. He wasn't taken like Elijah. And so Jesus came to set sinners free from bondage, to bring them, to give them a different destiny, to, so that they would have a home called heaven for all of eternity. And also we saw that the greatest need for man is to hear these words like Jesus told that man, says, son, your sins are forgiven. That is the greatest need for man. And the greatest, we said that in Miami, their greatest need in Miami as we go out is for people to know that their sins are forgiven. And so as we pick up in verse 14, he says, as he passed by, he saw Levi, the son of Alphaeus, sitting in the taxi, and he said to him, follow me. And he got up and he followed him. Now, I just want to open up with a little bit of an introduction of 
what it, what it meant to be a tax collector. It was a very lucrative business, um, and they made a ton of cash. But of course, as they grew in wealth, they, uh, they also uh, gained a, quite a reputation as known as pretty much the dregs of society, or they were called the worst of sinners. And you get that from Matthew 18 and Luke 5 as well. But during the Roman occupation of Israel, they had to pay taxes. They were, taxes were due to Rome. And so basically, the head of, uh, the, basically the tetriarchs of the different sections of Israel, they were, uh, you know, so you had Herod, you have, you have these different leaders, and they would, they would, Rome would sell, or they would sell franchises. It was like a business. It was like the, basically it was like the Galilean mafia, if you will. That's what these guys were. And they, they, they had to uh, meet their quota, um, and, and anything that they got from the people extra, they got to basically keep for themselves, and that made them very wealthy. In fact, it says in Luke 3, 12 and 13, this is John the Baptist speaking, but that some uh, tax collectors also became baptized, and they said to him, Teacher, what shall we do? And he said to them, Collect no more than what you have been ordered to do. Or than you're ordered to. And so these guys would just... They would, they would try to squeeze out as much as they possibly could out of the people. And this is what I thought was interesting was I was looking uh, a little bit of a background. They had the, the Mishnah and the Talmud uh, said this about tax collectors. A Jew who collected taxes was disqualified as a judge or a witness in the court, and they were expelled from the synagogue. So they could not go into the synagogue. They couldn't be a part of uh, Jewish, Jewish courts. Now, these were Jewish people usually that the that Rome hired, so to speak, to, to do their business. And caused, they caused disgrace to the family. They were considered thieves and murderers. Uh, they, were, they, were, or they were lumped together with thieves and murderers. They were thieves. The, the touch of the tax collector rendered a house unclean. Also, it says here in this note that, uh, that Jews were forbidden to receive money and even alms from tax collectors since revenue from taxes was deemed robbery. And then Jewish, there's a Jewish contempt of tax collectors, which was epitomized in the ruling that Jews could lie to tax collectors with impunity, which I thought that was kind of funny. Um, so they could lie to them and not get in trouble for it. So these guys were the drags of society. Uh, no one would want them as a close associate. There's no reason for that. They would probably be looked down upon. Their business would be trashed. If they, if they did call a tax collector to be a follower or some sort of associate or aid to their business. And so there's two kinds of tax collectors. There's the goodbye, which was, um, it sounds like goodbye, but goodbye. And they, were, they collected the general taxes, which was basically the poll tax, the income tax was about 1%, and then land tax. And then there was also the Mokis. Uh, they collected the specialized taxes, which were tolls, toll roads, bridges. And so big people would come from different towns and, and, and kind of cross the border, cross over a bridge. And the tax collector, which a Moki was a guy who would have set up a booth and there'd be a head Moki and then there'd be a, uh, kind of a sidekick. And that sidekick was most likely Matthew or Levi. Matthew was the, the Greek name. And a lot of commentators say that uh, Levi uh, was so ashamed of his uh, of his business, most likely that he changed his name to Matthew, 
because of the stigma of the tax collecting. And so there was a, basically had daily contact with um, with the people. He would charge. They would charge extra. So basically, like if you cross the San Francisco Bridge, so to speak, you kind of it's about four four to six dollars, if I remember correctly. It's a pretty expensive bridge across. There would be kind of a mokey that set up the tax booth there, and he would charge maybe ten bucks and keep four for himself. And they all knew that. They're like, look, we need to do this. We have no other choice. But they were surely hated. They were surely hated. What I find interesting here is that Jesus almost could care less. He, he looked at Matthew. He knew exactly what he was doing. He knows tax collectors. In fact, he knows a little bit more about a tax collector in general. He knows you. He knows every thought. He knows every deed. He knows your life from even before conception. And see, he knew everything about Matthew, yet he said, follow me. And we see nothing in here that said that Matthew tried to you know, make his life better or try to fix himself up. We see nothing of that nature. But he also called four of his other disciples. You saw that in Matthew 1. So Jesus already had disciples. And I'm sure his posse was with him as he called Levi, the tax collector. And I would imagine... His comrades were like, what in the world are you doing? You're going to ruin your ministry today if you do that. And you know those Pharisees that don't like you very much? They're definitely going to be on you. And it almost just seemed like Jesus didn't really care. But instead he says, follow me. And Matthew probably was shocked. Because he knew Jesus. He knew at least something of him. He knew that, I mean, his, his reputation was definitely spreading. People were getting healed. He knew that he forgave sin. And he was just shocked to know there's no possible way. I am the worst of sinners. I'm the worst of the worst. People hate me. And you're going to call me? This would have been a shock to everybody but as soon as Matthew, it says in Luke 5, 28, he left everything behind. It's almost like the disciples, when they threw their nets down and they went to follow Jesus, you could always go back to fishing. And they did, right? In John 21, they went back. But you can't go back to tax play. So he lost everything. Now it's going to be. And so I love this, that what Paul wrote in Philippians 3, 7 to 8, whatever things were gained to me, those things I have counted as lost for the sake of Christ. Matthew didn't care about his business anymore. Jesus, the King of kings, the Lord of lords, called him out of the booth. And when he calls you, and you know of his nature, that it's perfect. As Luke said, he continued to grow in wisdom and stature. and He was perfect. He was the sinless son of God. When he calls you, Nothing else matters. More than that, I've count all things to be lost in view of surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things. You could almost see Matthew saying this, and count them but rubbish so that I may gain Christ. No one's ever, at least of Jewish nature, talked to me other than, here's your money. You probably cussed at me and swore at me and Spit at me. They were disgusted at me, and now you have God, the God man, 
looking at me. And not like just looking at me, but saying, hey, come, follow me. I wonder what's next. And 1 Peter 4, 1, 4 says this, to obtain an inheritance which is imperishable and undefiled and will not fade away, reserved in heaven for you. He used heaven bound. He didn't care about his booth anymore. I don't know what kind of trouble he would have been in with his business. We don't know. But 1 Peter 5, 4 says this, when the chief shepherd appears, this is the only thing that's going to matter to you and me. It's the only thing that mattered to Matthew at that point. He said he didn't have to answer to the high, higher up Moki or Rome or the Tetrarch. But you will receive the unfading crown of glory when the chief shepherd appears. And he's going to. Whether you die and see him or whether he comes back and it's too late. But we're all going to stand before him. And at that point, nothing else mattered. Nothing mattered but those two most profound words that anybody could ever hear from God. Follow me. And not only that, you thought that was cool, but now they throw a party in verse 15. It says, and it happened that he was reclining at the table in his house and many tax collectors and sinners were dining with Jesus and his disciples. For there were many of them and they were following him. You basically, like, you, right here you saw basically a revival party. What others call, I mean, remember being in Antioch, we, we called them Matthew parties. When someone got saved, they would just invite their unsaved friends and then they would share the testimony. I suppose we maybe need to do that again. Uh, but they immediately went into a place of celebration. Matthew was, was like, please come. I want to come. I want you to come. I want you to meet my friends. I want you to see this Jesus. Because no one else treated me this way in my life. No one else was like that. Everybody else couldn't even look at me, let alone this person. Not only looked at me, but said, come and follow me. And Luke 5.29 gives us a little even more of a hint. It says, Levi gave a big reception for him in his house. Now, I'm sure he had a pretty nice house. Like most mafia. And there was a great crown of tax collectors and other people who were reclining at the, reclining at the table with him. Now, because of, because of his career, I'm sure that made him pretty good money. And he had a pretty big house. And that, again, didn't bother Jesus, did it? Jesus didn't once say, you know, let's go somewhere a little bit more modest. But Jesus went into the house. Not only that, but, you know, it was a couple other things. He reclined at the table. Now, they didn't, in the Middle East, they didn't sit in chairs. They reclined at the table. And anytime someone would recline at the table, basically was saying, hey, I'm going to stay with you for a little while. Most of us, we eat, you know, for me, at least for me, I'm standing up eating. I'm trying to get something for the kid. Can I get water? Can I do this? Then? You know, you're like the, you're eating and you're the chef and you're the, the waitress, waiter in the household with kids. But when you recline at the table, you, you're telling them, I'm here to stay with you. We knew this was going to be a long meal, full of lots of discussions. You can only imagine, would you like to be a fly on the wall? What does Jesus talk about behind the scenes? What does he say? What was he saying as everybody's kind of staring? I mean, his disciples are there, and they're like, this is crazy. Peter's like, what in the world is this guy doing? And he's always worried about like, how we can expand the ministry of Jesus, right? 
how we can make things better. He's always trying to think of new ideas. And the rest of them are like, what, you know, what's, what's happening? Why is this guy sitting with all these people? Because we know other sinners were there. It wasn't just, it was, it was also his, his mafia friends, tax collectors, but they're also prostitutes. They're also thieves, murderers. As we know, the dregs hang out with dregs. Society. They're not going to want to hang out with people that are better than them. That will make them feel bad, right? So you know this is kind of a pretty interesting situation. It had no business having the disciples there, let alone having God sit there. And also, Neil was, was, known, uh, was, uh, was really known as a social acceptance. Jesus was saying, I accept you, Matthew. Not only that, but I accept everyone else in the room as they are. That's the whole scandal of this story, which we're about to see in verse 16. As you see in every, almost in every chapter, you see a scandal. You see people responding that don't deserve the call of Jesus. And then you also have the response of the Pharisees. And I think that's so true even today, Watch your heart when things go really well for sinners around you. Watch your heart. Oh, you remember the story in Matthew 20 where the guys got the same amount of money due to them? Those who began the work in the morning and those at the very end. Those who will be first will be last those who will be last will be first. Remember when Jesus said that in Matthew 20? Watch your heart. Watch your heart when you're like, hey, you know, I've, I've, I've been with, you know, the disciples could easily said, you know, we've been with Jesus for a little bit of time here. Now, what are these jokers doing? Are we supposed to have a good ministry here? These guys are going to ruin everything. They're going to ruin your reputation. They're going to ruin, actually, they're probably going to ruin my, our reputation. And everyone's going to think we're hanging out with these guys. Because we're supposed to be, supposed to be changed by you. <laughs> we need to watch our heart. So what happens here in verse 16 is interesting, isn't it? When the scribes and the Pharisees saw that he was eating with sinners and tax collectors, they said to his disciples, why is he eating and drinking with tax collectors and sinners? So they talked to the disciples. They're like, look, people are following him. It actually says that at the end of 15, right? So in one sense, it is a revival party. I mean, people are coming to Christ at this moment. They're like, this is amazing. I mean, some probably said, well, hey, maybe I can just stay in my sin. It's no big deal. There's nothing here about repentance. Now, we know in Luke, it does add in verse 13, chapter 5, verse 32, it does add repentance in the picture. But Mark's not focusing on that. Mark's wanting you to see the scandal. He's wanting you to see the, 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 the fact that Jesus is literally sitting and accepting, which is he's doing that by eating sinners. He's accepting them just as they are. Friends, that's good news for you and me. Like, that's really good news. You should be looking at it like, yeah, okay, I've already seen that passage. That's nice. What else is next? You got a quote? 
<laughs> no, I don't actually. I don't have a quote right now. I have the word. I have the actions of Jesus. It's going to get really bad in the room for the self-righteous this morning. This morning, it's not going to be pretty. But for those who know they're sick, whoo, this is going to be good news. Real good news. Because he's sitting there having matzah bread and hummus with people that are hated. Hated. And the only people that were in a bad mood are maybe the disciples. Just maybe, we don't know. But the Pharisees and the religious leaders. And every time I told you, every time you see this, you have got to evaluate your own heart. That's why Mark puts it there. That's why Mark is telling this story. That's why he's not putting any religious jargon other than Jesus is literally just eating with prostitutes and tax collectors and sinners. Like that's the only thing he wants you to know. He just wants you to know that, by the way. Pay attention. But then he also wants you to see all the reactions in the room. And there's some scheming happening here. Whoa, hold on. They express their contempt outside the house. They wouldn't even go inside the house. Hey, Peter, come here. It's Jesus. I'd never know this guy. <laughs> They wouldn't even go in. The reason why they're not going to go in is because even the word Pharisee in Hebrew means separated one. You have to understand that Pharisees did not want to go near in order to preserve their salvation. They wouldn't even go near sinners. They wouldn't go near them. They wouldn't step foot in front of a house because what? They would be defiled. They would be contaminated. Jesus is He's not bothered one bit by this, is he? Not one bit. He's not freaking out. He doesn't have a nervous twitch. He's reclining. He's reclining. You ever just lay down at a meal? I have. I mean, those are fun, you know, Middle Eastern kind of things, or even in Japan you do that, a little Japanese house. You just relaxed. You had some sushi. Relax. You're with your wife. It's nice. Or for you singles with your roommates, your roomie time. <laughs> you're relaxed. You might have a little glass of wine if you're over 21 and you can handle it. So, you know, no drunkenness. Yeah. You're relaxed. With sinners. You're not like, whoa, hey, I got to share the full gospel. He's just, he's chilling. There's no other way to say it. <laughs> and people are walking by the little Japanese hut. Hmm. Isn't he a pastor? Isn't, what is he doing with these people? Now, Jesus is not participating in this stuff. He's not saying, Matthew, hey, you know, how'd you get into this business? I may, I, you know, I, our ministry needs some funds. I thought I'd maybe, you know, say follow me because, you know, I have another motive. I want, to, I want to find out how I can do business like you do. No. 
R.C. Sproul says this, many Christians act this way. Several years ago, a woman called me to say her husband wanted to play golf with me. And she said she would pay for the round as a birthday gift for her husband. And I agreed to play golf with him. And so we played 18 holes of golf. And then afterwards, the round, after the round, we went to the men's grill. And as he was leaving, he saw me then go to sit with my friends at the club. Many of them who were not believers at the time, but who are now members of the congregation. This man was so upset that I, that I was so friendly with these people that he took it upon himself to call the board of directors of Ligonier Ministries and complain that I was mixing with the wrong kind of people. He called those Pharisees. It happens today, doesn't it? Maybe the insecurities that come up when you're hanging around with sinners. And I'm talking not about when you go to Miami and just sharing the gospel with people who are not saved. I'm talking about you actually are relaxed around them. You're so sure of yourself that you know who God is. And you know that he is a friend of sinners that you have no qualms about actually sitting and having a meal with them and be perfectly fine. Knowing that I don't need to participate in the same things. And in fact, perhaps, maybe you do. And that doesn't change your nature, does it? Does it? Is it based on your works? Are you contaminated? Are you, are you, are you contaminated and washed clean by the blood of Jesus? And you, you know, you're spending time with God, then you go sit with sinners in order to reach them and love them, accept them. And all of a sudden you become contaminated. Then you have to go to the quiet time to be washed down. That's a silly way to live a Christian life, isn't it? Jesus is pretty amazing, isn't he? Perfectly secure in who he is. And then his response. And hearing this, you know, of course, he, he's probably like, those people doing over there? What are they talking about? He knows all of them. He knows their motives. He doesn't even need to hear it out loud, does he? But he heard it. And he said this. It is not those who are healthy who need a physician. He's basically giving his ministry statement, if you will. He's giving his vision statement. This is who he is. But for those who are sick, and then it's the secondary statement, he says, I did not come to call the righteous, but sinners. And I think it's interesting. I want to draw your attention to Luke chapter 5, verse 32. He adds to repentance. Call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. And so listen, the Bible's not confused. Mark and Luke are not confused. They're both believers, and they both, by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, wrote this word. Why would he add that? Well, just probably because in the, the grand scheme of things, God was probably saying, look, there's probably somebody going to be out there. If I don't put this in there, they're going to think, well, Jesus is just accepting them, but he never will call them to repentance. No. The point of Mark is to show that he accepted the scandal of grace of just saying, wow, I cannot believe this. It's supposed to shock you. And if it doesn't, that's a problem. 
Because maybe you're in the category of the Pharisees more than you know. This should bring great news to your ears. Reminding yourself that you are sick and need a doctor. You need him. You still need him. You need him now and you need him on your deathbed. There's never going to be a time it doesn't dwindle in need, does it? It's not like you need him on the day of salvation and then you get better over time. You are sanctified. You are going to become more like him. But I guarantee you the day of salvation, whether you're 18 years old and you die 80 something, I'll tell you, you'd be wise to say your last breath, I need him. I still need him. You know, 1 Corinthians 15, you know why he says, I'm the chief of sinners? It's not because Paul got worse. It's because he, the closer he was to Jesus, the more he realized, oh my goodness, I thought I was a sinner then. I think I'm even more now. But it's interesting. He was more then. And the sanctification process kicked in and he was getting better. But isn't it interesting? It's ironic. You're getting better, but you're actually thinking worse. Let me ask you a question. Is that you? The more you, you, the more you live your Christian life, the more you're looking down upon people. You said, oh, I don't do that stuff anymore. Really? You may not that, but something else. And because you're so occupied with the things you don't do, you forget, you, that you, you forget the things you do do. Or at least you're ignorant of it. Or blind to it. If God were to uncover the veil, you'd be undone. Because it's not about adultery and murder and uh, stealing things. I mean, I'm sure most of us don't do that. It's the sins in the mind and the heart that never make its way out that offend God. And He has a different rubric than we do. In Matthew 9, verse 13, he adds this. He says, I desire compassion and not sacrifice. What is he saying? It's a very interesting addition. I mean, he said it, just not in Mark. So what was he saying? He gave this amazing illustration. He's like, look, I'm a doctor. And I've come for the sick. And then also he, he answers these Pharisees using the scriptures by way of analogy and also scripture. And it's important for us to see what Jesus' heart reveals about who he is and what he came to do. Jesus told the Pharisees, find out what this means. Do you know what he's ultimately saying to them? It's kind of tongue-in-cheek. He's like, you know what? Go and learn. It was a rebuke to them. In other words, it was a rebuke to the foolish and the ignorant. He said, look, why don't you go and learn something that you probably already know that when you were in class. But somehow you forgot. You tell me, you represent God, and yet you're not choosing compassion and mercy. Something's off here, bud. I want you to go back to school, pick up your Bible, and read this. That's basically what he was saying. Okay? And they're like, excuse me? Yes. Let me say it in Arabic. <laughs> so Isaiah, Hosea 6.6 6 says, I desire compassion, not sacrifice. In other words, he desired a merciful heart, not a hard, hypocritical one. 
Listen to this. I'm going to spew off a few verses here. Proverbs, 30, or Proverbs 21, 3 says, Do righteousness and justice, because it is desired by the Lord more than sacrifice. Isaiah 1, 11 through 17 says this, What are your multiplied sacrifices to me? This is very convicting. I mean, this is God speaking, okay? I have had enough of burnt offerings and rams. Rare parents say that. I have had enough. It's like, okay, this is when it gets real. And the fat of fed cattle. And I take no pleasure in the blood of bulls, lambs, or goats. When you come to appear before me, who requires of you this trampling of my courts? Bring your worthless offerings no longer. Incense is an abomination to me. New moon and Sabbath, the calling of assemblies. I cannot endure the iniquity and the solemn assembly. I hate your new moon festivals. I hate your religion, is what he's saying. I can't stand your wicked hearts, your hypocritical hearts, your pointed feasts. They have become a burden to me. I am weary of bearing, bearing them. When you spread out your hands in prayer, I will hide my eyes from you. Yes, even when you multiply your prayers, I will not listen. Your hands are covered with blood, sacrifice after sacrifice. You might be thinking, well, that's how you set it up. Yes, you're right. But their hearts were wicked as they went through the motions. Wash you. Remove the evil from your deeds from my sight. Cease to do evil. Learn to do good. Seek justice. Reprove the ruthless. Defend the orphan. Plead for the widow. That's what I desire from you. It's about the heart. They totally forgot that. That's why the goal here, even though we're going, we're going, you know, we are growing deeper in the word. It's wonderful as a church. But watch your heart. Amos 5.21 says something similar. I hate, I reject your festivals, nor do I delight in your solemn assemblies. Even though you offer up to me burnt offerings and your grain offerings, I will not accept them. He will not accept your motions. He will not accept your hypocritical prayer life. It's a waste of your time. Take away from me the noise of your songs. Turn off the iPad. Turn off iTunes. Turn off Spotify. And get real with God. Talk to him about your heart if it's hardened, hypocritical. He'll listen to that. I will not even listen to the sound of your hearts. I won't listen to your worship. You can sing all you want, it doesn't matter. You can sing as loud as you want, it won't matter. But let, this is what I want. Let justice roll down like waters, righteousness like an ever-flowing stream. That's what God's heart is. It's about mercy. It's about when you see a sinner in need, when he's struggling, it's not like, man, dude, I'm so glad I'm like that guy. I am so thankful that I've overcome that sin so I don't have to go through the consequences like that guy. Ah, pick it up a little. 
Micah 6, 8 says this, And what does the Lord require of you? But to do justice, to love kindness. Kindness, we just read that in Ruth. Boaz showed such kindness to the foreigner and to the widow. Righteousness, righteousness, and walk humbly with your God. I love what 1 Samuel 16 says, that he looks at the man's heart, not the externals. That's always convicting, isn't it, for us? Looks at man's heart. You can fool everybody in the room. You can fool people at the grocery store when you see them and say, hey, how are you doing? I'm great, man. I'm doing awesome. Now you don't need to go in the little confessional in the, you know, cereal aisle. <laughs> Grab your Cheerios and be like, hey, actually, I'm, you reminded me of something, and so I'm going to call you this week, and I'm going to confess some things. You need to live like that, with a humble heart. Because that's what God requires. And the crazy thing is, you might think you might be meeting with him, and you might be, but he's not listening. And that's kind of a scary thought, isn't it? To be in the quiet place for that much time and it to fall on deaf ears. But he says this again. He says, I did not come to call the righteous, but people who know they are sinners. That they know, when you know that, when you know the depths of your sin. And we're going to talk a little bit about this in a second as we begin to wrap up. We might be asking, how, how do we know that we're sinners? How do we, how do, I, I, you know, sometimes I think in church it's so easy to talk about the bigger sins. Like all of us here, we're not dealing with tax collecting and cheating people out of money most likely. Right? We're not struggling with that kind of sin. I don't think you're going to go to life and be like, I'm cheating people out of a lot of cash. <laughs> oh, you're a tax collector? No, it's, it's something else. It's called Robin Hood. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> yeah. particular sins. You can't just think about, oh, these are the sins that I know. These are the sins that I'm aware of, the bigger ones. But listen to what he says. How difficult we all find this to be. We all have got these prejudices. We can find sin to certain things only, and because we are not guilty of these, we think that we are not sinners. But that is not the way to know the conviction of sin. Do you remember when John Wesley was, uh, some of you guys know the story, when he crossed the Atlantic, he met up with these, these radical, passionate people called Moravians. And Jonathan, John Wesley, he, he, was, he was struggling. I mean, he was, 
He was already struggling before he got on that boat, and then he was really struggling with his salvation and whether where he was going to go when he was going to die and whether he really knew God. When that storm hit, it was basically like a hurricane. And the Moravians were just so peaceful. They were just sleeping and restful. And he's like, being around these people made me think, maybe I don't know God. Why do I fear death like that? Could perhaps this offend God? You see, as you get closer to Jesus, as you get closer to his word, it's amazing what comes up. The hidden things of the heart. Wesley thought, oh, I'm okay until I saw those guys. Or I was okay until I read that book about that saint. Or I was around that person, that leader. And I realized, oh my goodness, I don't even know if I know God. And that's what Wesley thought. You see, you don't want to compare yourself with other people, but become, become face to face with the law of God. You don't want to, it's so dangerous, like the Luke 18, right? The parable that Jesus told, it could have been real too, you could have been looking uh, literally at a Pharisee and a tax collector, but the tax collector is just beating his breast, he couldn't even look at God. And the Pharisee's like, I'm so glad I'm not like that man. And he said, there's only one man that went home justified, and that was the tax collector. And again, a shocking statement. He loves him. In fact, Luke 19.10 says what? Or 19.11 says what? Jesus came to seek and save the what? The lost. But that's why he came. Of course he's going to hang out with sinners. He loves them. He wants to hang out with people that know they're not good enough. That's the point. And the only people that's going to tick off are self-righteous people who don't need a doctor. It's the only But here's the test, guys. Here's the test for union. Are you loving God with all your being? If you're not, you are a sinner. That is the test. All have sinned and come short of the glory of God. Do I know God? Is Jesus Christ real to me? Am I not asking whether, I'm not asking whether you know things about him. We all know that. But do you know God? Are you enjoying God? Is he the center of your life, the soul of your being, the source of your greatest joy? Is that your life? This is how he meant it to be. He made man in such a way that that was to be the position. That man might dwell in communion with God and enjoy God and walk with God. You and I are meant to be like that. And if we are not like that, that is sin. We're so occupied with the thing that that one sin that keeps tripping us up. And we're like, if I defeat that, then, then I'm good. No, you're not. You're not good. Because there's a whole slew of others that the Lord still has to reveal. That's what makes the gospel so glorious, doesn't it? That all of your sins have been washed away. See, this is the essence of sin. We have no right to be this way. That is sin of the deepest and worst type. It's the essence of sin. And have you have no right to be like that. When you do not live for the glory of God, that is sin. And I'm telling you, everyone in this room does not live for the glory of God, including myself. Think about the last time you served somebody. 
Are you so conscious of your serving or are you conscious of the person you were serving? The last time you were asked to do something, maybe even as life group, are you so occupied when you go into life group? What about me, me? What do I say? What do I say? How do I impress? How, what do I say? How do I say it? Well, people respond. Those might be good questions in part, but are you living for the glory of God? And when you're not, that is the essence of sin. Or what about pride in your accomplishments? What about you looking down or feeling better about yourself than other people? But you're better. Think about the person that you talked to in Miami, just the, the most lost person that you can possibly think of in Miami. You think you're better than them? Are you like, man, I'm glad I'm not like that guy. That guy's really messed up. This is what we do. This is, this is the meaning of this text. This is what Jesus does. He draws out the best and the worst, doesn't he? More often times the worst. But you know what? He didn't run away, did he? What happened when Peter walked out on the water and then sank? Did Jesus leave him? No, he rebuked him. Where's your faith? Why didn't you apply it? I mean, you got out of the boat, but remember? You got out of the boat. So if you got out of the boat... How did you sink? That's our life, isn't it? That's our life. That's a great illustration of our life. That we have faith, but yet we have little faith. We have faith to save us, but we have little faith to sustain us through life. So much fear of death and fear of so many different things in our life that we're worrying about. But if you've never realized your guilt, you'll never see the pure joy or experience the pure joy of his salvation. You have to know this. But there's one more thing before we close. One more thing that I want to show us uh, that often happens in our heart when the gospel is preached to us that I found really interesting. Lloyd-Jones says this. All sin has been punished and put on the perfect Son of God. That is how sin can be removed. But then I would ask these people as he was sharing the gospel, and often we do this too as well on the streets when we're saying, do you believe this? I don't know if you ever talked to somebody like this, but really, have you ever, have you ever been on the receiving side? And is this you? He says, look, if you believe that Jesus died for your sins and has literally counted you as righteousness and Literally eliminated every sin you could ever possibly even do in the past, or did in the past, in the present, and could do in the future. So you're set. Do you believe that? And of course, more, you know, we all say yes. Yes, of course I believe that. It's wonderful. But then there's a hesitation. And here's why there's a hesitation. They say, I do not feel that I'm good enough. They are still thinking in terms of themselves. Their idea still is that they have made, made themselves good enough to be a Christian. Good enough to be accepted with Christ. 
They still have to do it. They still say, I'm not good enough. And it sounds really modest, doesn't it? We all do this. We accept God's forgiveness, but at the same time say, I'm not good enough. I'm not good enough. And what that does is drive us further away from Christ. And what that does is it, 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 it dampers our mood. It, 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 it kills our joy. It kills our fellowship with Him. Most of us, we, we, you guys, I've heard so many different complaints. Oh, I don't feel connected with God. I don't feel connected with God. We got Him in the Word. Wait, that doesn't match up. The more you're in the Word, the more you should feel connected with God. You know what the problem is? Belief. It always has been the problem, hasn't it? Belief has always been the problem. Why do people steal? Because they don't believe that God will provide them a job. Why do people lust? It's because they don't realize how good they have it in their marriage. Why do people jealous? Because they don't realize how God's provided them again. Mm. Mm. Really does unbelief, doesn't it? So they think this is modest. But you know what? It's a lie from the devil. It is a denial of faith. You think that you are being humble, but you'll never be good enough. Nobody's ever been good enough. Are you kidding? The essence of a Christian of Christian <laughs> salvation is to say that he is, he is good enough, that he is good enough. Christ is good enough, not us, and that I am in Him. Mm. In other words, what do we need to do? Get your eyes off of yourself. When you're in the quiet place, when you're fellowshipping with God, when it's the most rich, is because your eyes are on Him. Did you ever think about that? The reason why our, our fellowship is not rich and the communion is not sweet is because our eyes are on ourselves, our inadequacies. We're not good enough, we're not good enough, we're not good enough. There's not other people. You're trying to measure up. You're trying to compare. But when our eyes are on him, it says, forget yourself, forget all about yourself. Of course you're not good enough and you never will be. It does not matter that you what you have done. It does not matter what you will do in the future. The one thing that matters is what he has done. And what he's done for you. And that he enjoys fellowship with you. He ate with tax collectors before they got saved. Before they repented. It does not matter if you have almost entered into the depths of hell. If you are guilty of murder as, if, as well as any other vile sin. It does not matter from the standpoint of being justified with God. You are no more hopeless than the most respectable, self-righteous person in the world. Do you believe it? We need to look to Christ. That's the true test of our faith. We need to look at him. And really, that was Peter's fault. He looked at Jesus. I mean, he had faith. He's like, he even told Jesus, hey, Jesus, I want you to tell me to get out of the boat. Okay, hey, come on for me. Get out of the boat. I mean, Jesus didn't tell him to get out of the boat. He was like, hey, I kind of want to experiment something. Just for kids. Tell me to get out of the boat. Get out of the boat. Okay. He got out of the boat. What did he look at? He looked at Jesus before he got out of the boat. And once he got out of the boat, what did he look? So. 
And it's the same with you and me. We struggle, all of us struggle with unbelief. And that's why a great prayer is that, God, I do believe. I mean, it got me to church. But help my unbelief. Help my unbelief. As you close, the great hymnist wrote this, my hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness. I dare not trust my sweetest frame, but wholly lean on Jesus' name. On Christ the solid rock I stand, all other ground is seeking sand. The terrors of the law and of God with me can have nothing to do. My Savior's obedience and blood hide all my transgressions from view. You will not remember them any longer. He came as a doctor to come and heal the spiritually sick. So when you admit that you're spiritually sick, he rescues you. He comes in. He gives you the appropriate medicine needed, which is his blood, his sacrifice. And he cleanses you forever. Forever. Once and for all. Instead of looking at yourself, just say simply, it is finished. The hymnist said, it is covered by the blood of Christ. I rest my faith on him alone who died for my transgressions to atone. And when you do, you'll experience a joy you've never known. Amen? It's a wonderful way to end it. And I just want to say this. If you've never given your life to Jesus, if you've never seen the gospel quite as beautiful as this, I don't need you to come up front. I don't need you to raise a hand. I don't need you to do anything. But simply sit in your chair and say, I believe. I confess with my mouth I will believe with my heart that Jesus Christ is the Lord and Savior of my life. I trust Him. And for those who are struggling with unbelief and struggling and, and, and maybe even a perspective, just even listen to this in 1 Corinthians 6, 9 through 11. Do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived, neither fornicators, idolaters, adulterers, and the effeminate, the homosexuals, thieves, covetous, the drunkards, the revilers, the swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. They won't as those who practice. But listen to this. Such were some of you. You were like that until Jesus touched your life. And that same faith that activated, got activated on the day of salvation lives inside of you. And you need to activate it again. To trust that Jesus still is going to sustain you. And that, you know what? You haven't sensed salvation. You haven't lived perfectly. And you still need his forgiveness. Because none of us perfectly live for the glory of God. None of us perfectly love God with all our soul, strength, and mind. Heart, soul, strength. Jesus was the only one. And he became sin. And he gave us his righteousness. And when we put him on, the Father looks at us and says, Ah, but you love me perfectly. That's Jesus. And that's why it's important to put him on. To put on his righteousness. To cling to him. Cling to the cross. Run to the cross. Cling to it. Because if you're worse 
Your worst nights when you're in the pit and you're like, there's no way possible I'm saved because of what you thought and what you did. Know that the cross is sufficient. Self-righteous has no business in this church. No Pharisees. But just the sick. We need him. Amen? Father, we thank you that we could come and run to the cross and cling to the cross. We could do that any second of the day. But I thank you for this amazing reminder again and again 